everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Rebecca, and of course, I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Nicole and Journey. This week, we will be discussing the Norfolk Four and false confessions. Before we begin this episode, we just want to give a listener's discretion, as there are going to be discussions of both sexual assault and murder in this podcast. Like last week, we discussed uh, psychology and the law, and we wanted to expand on that a little further with the Norfolk Four today, so we wanted to talk about something else we learned about forensic psychology that was false confessions. So first, we'll be hearing from Nicole, who's going to tell us about who the Norfolk Four were, and then we're going to hear all about false confessions with our wonderful journey. Yeah, so this story is of four U.S. Navy sailors, Derek Tice, Daniel Williams, Joe Dick Jr., and Eric Wilson, who actually all confessed to a sexual assault and murder of an individual that obviously they did not commit this crime. Um, so it's a very infuriating topic. I know the three of us just watched a documentary about this last night, but to kind of give everyone the rundown... So in July of 1997, U.S. Navy man William Bosco came home after a week at sea only to find his wife was brutally murdered in their home. Bosco had run to a neighbor in their complex, this was Daniel Williams, and said that his wife, 18-year-old Michelle Moore Bosco, was dead and wanted Williams to call the police. There is no forced entry on the house. It was clean and tidy since Michelle had cleaned the house in, in anticipation of um, Bosco's return from sea. And the bedroom was the only exception where, of course, Michelle's body was. One of the detectives that was first on scene had asked a neighbor, her name was Tamika Taylor, who do you think would do this based on your hunch? So she had pointed her finger at their neighbor, Daniel Williams, accusing him of the crime. And she had told the police that Williams had a crush on the victim. And so this was of interest to the detectives, and they then took him in for questioning. He was given a polygraph test, Williams, and he was told that he had failed this test and that he needed to start telling the truth. In reality, though, Williams had actually passed the test, but of course told otherwise. His interrogation with the police lasted for over nine hours. The first detective, she interrogated Williams, didn't get anywhere with it, so she handed it over to Detective Ford. And the four men, the Norfolk Four, described him to be like a bulldog. So I guess he was just like, I didn't really understand the reference. I guess he's just like very intimidating. Bulldogs kind of make me laugh because they are stumpy legged and angry, but I guess that was Detective Ford. (laughs) So after hour 11 of the interrogation, Daniel Williams had confessed to this crime. His confession, though, was completely inconsistent with the facts of the crime. So he had said that he killed the victim with his fist and a shoe, although the detectives didn't know the autopsy results at the time of this confession. And then it later came out that She was actually stabbed to death, and a bent knife was laying near her body. During the interrogation, the detectives came back and then demonstrated on themselves where the victim, Michelle, was stabbed in the chest. And after Daniel had seen that, he actually amended his statement, his um, confession statement, to match what the detectives had told him. That makes me so mad, because... Like, you're giving him information that only the killer would know. Yeah, like, literally pointing to where on their chest that she was stabbed. 
Oh my goodness. And they think, oh yeah, he confessed. This was all him. He did it. Right, he had insider killer knowledge. Yeah, exactly. No, he didn't. So, Williams was charged with rape and murder less than 24 hours after the crime was discovered. And, unfortunately, throughout this whole process, he never used his right to a lawyer during the interrogation, which definitely played a role in this. But, once Williams was charged, the initial detective, so this was Detective Maureen Evans, she was the one that asked the neighbor, like, oh, what's your gut feeling? Who do you think did this? She actually left the force for a different job. And Detective Ford had other cases he was working on, so this case was kind of seen as closed. But four months later, DNA results came back, and Williams, his DNA did not match the semen that was found at the crime scene. So instead of saying, oh, you weren't there, okay, we'll let you go, the detectives assumed that Williams must have still been involved, that although he didn't sexually assault Michelle, he was still there, and there had to be someone else involved. So this was kind of a start of this whole conspiracy that these detectives created, and it just gets crazy from here. This information was kept secret from the public, though. So they just didn't decide to inform the public that his DNA didn't match him and that he could be innocent, but they didn't want to think of that. So there has to be more people involved. They just told the public that there are more people that we are looking for in this case. That baffles me. Yeah. Like, oh, his DNA doesn't match. Okay, obviously there was more than one person who killed this girl. Yeah. Not even, like, an elimination of a suspect or kind of putting him to the back of the line of suspects. It was just like, okay, let's add someone else to this. Right, he must have killed her, but didn't rape her. Yeah, exactly. Like, they were so in denial that they were wrong, they just had to keep elaborating on their current story. Yeah, so it's definitely a very bad start to this case, I'd say. Um with this first individual and the way that the detectives are handling things. When the DNA came back that said that Williams did not match the semen samples, detectives then went to interrogate his roommate, Joe Dick Jr. And this individual, he was considered to be a loner all throughout his life. So he like kept to himself, didn't have very many friends. And he did have some learning disabilities at the time. He was a bit slower, but he was also a, Navy sailor, Detective Glenn Ford ended up waiting for him at the station when they brought him in. And Dick gave the alibi that he was at sea on a Navy ship at the time of the crime, and there were people to prove this. And the detectives were like, Nope, you commit this, you committed this crime. We're going to interrogate you. Why? Yeah. You have good alibis. Yeah, Navy officers. Why was it? Oh, they're not literally in the middle of the sea. Yeah. No, you. No, you weren't. (laughs) That's what baffles me with this case because they're all sailors, and over half of them were literally at sea at the time, and yet (laughs) they were still convicted. Right. Spoiler alert: they they were convicted again. A polygraph test was administered to Joe Dick Jr. 
he was told he failed, but these results had never been released. So like Williams, they were released that he had actually passed, but was told that they failed. Everyone else, they kept these results a secret from everyone. They just didn't even bother to tell the public. And it was a common thing that they said that they wanted to tell Detective Ford anything that would get him off their back and to shut him up. So in the interrogation, um, Detective Ford showed Joe Dick a photo of the victim and the crime scene, which is said to have traumatized um, Joe Dick Jr. And he still thinks about it to this day. And so this is, again, is feeding information to these individuals that only the perpetrator would have known. Like, why would you show of police photographs of crime scenes to the person you're interrogating and be like, what did you do? You did this. What did you do? Uh, with these two men, the Detective Ford, apparently he was just nonstop like yelling at them, threatening them for the whole interrogation. So the first one lasted over 11 hours. I think this one was after 11 as well. They were very long interrogations. And he just did not let up on these guys. And so they told the detective what he wanted to hear and told him that Danny was there. That Sorry, the first guy, Daniel Williams, that he was there. So was Joe Dick. And then Ford would like come back with stuff saying like, didn't it happen like this? Oh, I thought it happened like this. So again, feeding information to this guy. And at the same time, this man has learning disabilities and is not able to fully comprehend and process all of this stuff. It just, yeah, that's a whole other topic and discussion in itself. But that is very infuriating. I agree. Like, I don't understand why they didn't recognize that he's not processing what's going on around him. So to maybe, like, take it easy. Exactly. Ford ended up telling Joe Dick Jr. that he knew that he was there, that he could prove it, and that they just need Joe Dick Jr.'s DNA. And, like, Dick was just like, yes, 100%, I will give you my DNA, because I know for a fact I was not there. So he gave them three different samples of DNA. He gave them pubic hair, blood samples, and head hair samples. He was super excited from this, thought he was going to walk out of the station a free man. But unfortunately, this was not the case. They kept the charges in place, and they actually arrested him, hoping that the DNA would prove them right. So they didn't even have the DNA results at this time. They were just keeping their fingers crossed and that they would be able to put him behind bars because of that. Oh my goodness. Obviously, DNA did not match. His parents took out a mortgage on their home to pay for a lawyer, which was a lot of money. Michael Michael Fascinaro. And when the information came back that Dick's DNA did not match, the attorney said that there had to be someone else again. So it was like feeding in on this detective's conspiracy that there had to be more people. So now it's turning into this whole like gang rape and murder situation. And the, his attorney was telling him that if he cooperated, he would get a lesser sentence. He just needs to tell the truth. And he even called Dick's family telling them that he's guilty. He was involved in the crime from start to finish. And that he just like, please just tell your son to say 
that he did it. Like, tell the truth is basically what he's telling his parents. I am so genuinely confused how multiple times DNA was, like, exculpatory for suspects. And they kept going, oh, well, that just means there was more people involved. Like, that usually eliminates suspects. Why are you adding to the equation? Right? It, it just doesn't make any sense. And what happened to innocent until proven guilty? Nope, it's guilty until proven innocent. That's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. And this is the guy that they're paying to defend their son. And why would he be like, okay, there's more people because his DNA didn't match. Like, that doesn't make sense to anybody. Right? And so this attorney was, like, telling the whole family, like, yeah, we've got a problem. Like, he's guilty. He needs to confess. So now the family doesn't know what to believe. They're like, well, I would never expect my son to do this. But now the attorney that we're paying thousands of dollars is saying that he did it. So what kind of what what do we do? And I don't know. I feel like unless you're in that position as a family, you'd be you have no idea how to handle this. Yeah, that's such a tough position to be in. And so Dick himself had said, coming from mom, it made sense. Coming from an attorney sounded like sheer lunacy. So once his mom was like, you need to tell the truth, Joe Dick was like, okay, like, yeah, I do. And he started to actually believe that he had committed this crime after everyone was like, you need to tell the truth. You were there. Like, he 100% thought he was there and commit this crime, which is insane. That's so sad because he looks like such a sweet guy mm-hmm. and that to just take complete advantage of him, it just, it makes me sad. Yeah. And another thing too, Fascinero. So the attorney literally said, quote, I don't need to be there. Joe was already committed. My presence would hinder him more than help him when it came to interrogations. So his defense attorney was literally like, no, he's guilty. Like he, he's going to jail like I'm not gonna go help him only he that can is, help himself that's the opposite of <laughs> like what a defense lawyer is supposed to say like I just I don't understand I this whole case I don't understand and it just it is a complete question mark from start to finish because as an outsider would you not be like this isn't what you're paid for we need someone else. Um, yeah, so Fascinero didn't accompany Joe Dick in any of his interrogations. Dick ended up making up a story to tell these detectives what they wanted to hear. And everything that was said was what the detectives had fed them. So all of the facts that were presented to him was what he relayed back as his confession. So yeah, like I said, he soon began to think that he was actually part of the crime and that he had truly murdered this woman after these interrogations. And especially while he was in jail, like ruminating and thinking back on all of it, he was like, I 100% was there and I did this. Isn't that crazy? That's so wild. Because first I was like, a lot of people will say, well, no, if you're innocent, you won't confess to a crime you didn't commit. Obviously, that's not the case. And you will you don't know that until you're in a position, but to confess to a crime you didn't commit, okay, but then to believe that you took part in this crime you did not commit, like, that's just a whole new level of... so sad. 
Right? Like, just how, like, how impressionable the human mind actually is. And just, it's just so sad that, like, an innocent man could genuinely believe they committed such a heinous crime because the police convinced them. Yeah. And I can't even wrap my head around it because I would be like, I would never think I did something. Like, I know I didn't do it. I would never confess or whatever. But if you're being interrogated, yelled at, threatened for 12 hours nonstop, no food, no water, no sleeping, whatever, then you're going to think you did it. It's, I don't don't know. I mean, okay, I falsely confessed to something that I did not do. Um, My brother came downstairs and cut my sheets. I don't know why. What? (laughs) And I was, like, having a nap, and I woke up, and my mom's like, why'd you cut your sheets? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, why'd you cut your sheets? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, go downstairs and look. And so I went and I looked and I was like, there's a gigantic hole under my pillow. And I was like, that's so weird. I didn't do that. I have no idea what happened. Like, that had to be my brother. And I went upstairs and I was like, I have no idea what happened. And mom's like, why'd you do it? And I was like, I don't know. Like, maybe I did it, but I don't remember doing it. And like, it was so weird. <laughs> she like convinced me that I be- like that I did it, even though I knew full well that I didn't do it, and she knew full well that I didn't do it. Yeah, we both knew it was my brother, and I took full blame for it. It's just like the thought of not being able to accept no as an answer. Like, yeah. n- no, I didn't do it. Well, that's not good enough. Like, there's someone did it. You are in this area. You did it. It's your sheets. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it was in your bed. How did you not notice a gigantic hole? But know. now imagine that on, like, a much higher scale of murdering someone. Yeah. And saying you murdered someone. <laughs> like, I came in five minutes. Yeah. To cutting sheets. <laughs> cutting a human. <laughs> that would just... <laughs> All you need is five hours with that one, I guess, Journey. Oh, apparently. I think I'm highly suggestible. I think everyone is. That's fair. Of course, when Dick's DNA didn't match, he was asked, he was asked, well, who else are you working with? Because obviously there were more people. So he decided to tell the police that Eric Wilson was involved, another Navy sailor who was arrested as soon as he was back from his Mediterranean cruise. So, this is less than a month after, I think, the crime. And he is away on a Mediterranean cruise. And yet he's convicted with murder. Was he on the cruise when the murder happened? I'm... I want to say yes, but that could just be me getting angry about this and being like, he has a freaking alibi. Why would you? (laughs) But he very well, it may have just been like a week cruise and they just arrested him after. Yeah. Because like you have to wait for him to get back to arrest him. It's probably not reasonable to think that he murdered someone while on the cruise. Yeah. Right. They knew each other, but these two were not friends. So I I couldn't really, like, figure out, I couldn't remember why Joe Dick was like, oh, Eric Wilson. I think it was just because he knew of the guy and they were in the Navy together. Anyways, Wilson's DNA, of course, came back negative to, like, not a match, I guess, two months 
after his arrest. So detectives went back to Joe Dick Jr. And he gave a new statement saying there were three other men involved. Not that, oh, of course, like, he's not, whatever. But there's other men involved. So did he just add one more? Oh, no, I guess that would make it four. So so he originally had said Joe George Clark and gave a description as one of the three men. He wasn't a person. He just didn't exist. But the the drawing, the composite that was drawn of this description, looked similar to a man in the Navy yearbook type thing. So they put this book in front of Joe Dick Jr. and was like, okay, point to him. Like, tell us who this guy was, obviously, because George Clark doesn't exist. He literally, like, flipped through a couple pages and was like, oh, that guy looks like the composite. That's him. Just literally just eeny, meeny, miny, that one. And so he ended up picking out Derek Tice, who obviously looked similar to the sketch. And this would have been the fourth man now fourth Navy sailor. Tice had only ever had a speeding ticket in Virginia and was super confused when he was, I don't know if he was like subpoenaed to come to Virginia or how that works, but he had to come to Virginia and then they were like, yeah, we're arresting you for murder. And he was like, ah, maybe not. What? I thought I was paying a speeding ticket kind of thing. But he was interrogated by Ford again. He yelled at him, told Derek he was going to die called him a liar, and all of this was nonstop for eight hours. I don't know how the detective could do that for eight hours, because, like, being mean, like, trying to yell at someone for a minute, I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do this anymore. But for eight hours? That's, that's a, a long. That's a, that's a long time to be interrogating someone, to be let, on and be questioning, let alone being interrogated. Yeah. So like the other three men, Tice had been given a polygraph test. The results, again, have never been released. And he told the investigators that he would stop talking until he got a lawyer. So this, he kind of had an idea because he knew he wasn't there. He was picked from a hat, basically. Thirteen minutes later, Ford comes back in and says, I told you you were guilty. Like, I knew it. You failed the polygraph test. Start talking. No lawyer was then given. They proceeded with the interrogation and 11 hours of interrogating, Tice gave Ford what he wanted to hear and signed a confession. All of these four men were threatened with the death penalty unless they were to confess. And in the documentary, we watched the PBS one, they said there are these things called like torture their torture techniques called showing the instruments where like the torturer will lay out all the tools tell the victim what they're going to do to them try to get information that way because they kind of scare the shit out of them to tell them and so it was said that ford used this death penalty as showing the instruments in the case so he was like well if you don't confess you're still going to get convicted but you're just going to get the death penalty they're going to kill you uh, would you rather be dead or tell the truth and just get a lighter, like, life in prison kind of thing? It's like quid pro quo without, like, f- physicality. Exactly. So all four men confessed. Confessed. 
the details of all four confessions conflicted with each other. So they didn't make sense with one another. And they said that Detective Ford emotionally wore them down. So they weren't actually scared of what was going to happen next in the trial process. They were scared of Detective Ford. So they were just focusing on giving them everything they wanted to hear. And each of the confessions and everything that was said was scripted by Ford. So the apartment details were known because the men were shown photos. And like I said, showed where the stab wounds happened, all of this information. So Derek Tice, he was one of the guys, he said that they had rehearsed the statement for an hour and a half to two hours until it was a big enough story that Detective Ford liked. And then they proceeded to go over this confession story three more times to make sure that Tice had all of the information right. And then after all of this rehearsal, they then recorded his statement. So not even like recording at the beginning or video recording, audio recording, whatever. There was no proof, no indication of anything prior to this confession. So all they had and what they went to court with is this man saying how he killed this woman with three other men. And it was just perfectly recorded. Yep. Like no mistakes, no errors. It was very well scripted. And of course, after this statement, this whole confession statement, Derek Tice, his DNA also came back negative. The detectives were asking who else was involved then, because obviously there is someone else. And they had thought that two more men were involved because um, Joe Dick had originally said there were three more people. So Jeffrey Ferris and Rick Pauly were names that just just popped into Derek's head. And so they were then arrested. (laughs) Because he thought of them, they were arrested. Their DNA didn't match, of course. Uh, Ferris and Polly went back to Derek Tice again, looking for more people. And this is when Detective Ford became interested in John Dancer, who was a shipmate of Derek's on the George Washington. And Derek Tice had said that John Dancer was not there, but Ford made him put Dancer in the story regardless, saying that he was there. Which doesn't make sense because at the time, the same day of the murder, John Dancer's birthday was that same day. So he had, again, a solid alibi like many of the other men. Tice was actually brought back in again when it came back that Dancer had an alibi because it was his birthday and he was celebrating it with a whole bunch of people. But they still decided to prosecute Dancer even with his alibi. I'm pretty sure he wasn't even in the state at that point. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. It started with one, one man, and I think it's eight now, seven now, that are being convicted of this crime. And the first one was arrested on the hunch. Yeah. Of of a best friend. Yeah. Of a neighbor or whatever. Of a neighbor. So because Derek Tice had put John Dancer's name kind of under the bus, he had to testify at Dancer's preliminary hearing saying that, yeah, he was there. He committed the crime. But Dancer ended up recanting his confession and 
Tice had this moral obligation that he could not testify against Dancer because he wasn't there. He knew he wasn't there. He couldn't pull himself to say that this individual was. So he took himself out of the plea deal, and Ferris, Polly, and Dancer were all released, of course, because there was no evidence, as there has been none with any of these individuals. And the three of them hadn't given a false confession. Like, they hadn't confessed to anything, so that's why they were allowed to be released. And Derek would then go to trial and face the death penalty because his, he backed out of his plea deal. So his plea deal was for life in prison, and he said, no, I can't say that this guy was here. I'm going to have to face the death penalty now, which I think is terrifying. Yep, I would crap my pants. Yeah, absolutely. And another shocking thing is that anytime one of these men confessed, the detectives would tweak their stories, bending the case to fit whatever evidence was before them. So as each man confessed with their own stories and more evidence was coming to light, the detectives were like, ah, okay, this is actually what happened with the crime. So it ended up going from a single sexual assault and murder case to a gang sexual assault and murder case with seven men taking part in this ordeal. But then, however long after, a letter was given to the police from an anonymous woman, and it was written by a man in jail. And it was an angry love letter written by this man called Omar Ballard. And in it, he was just talking about another crime he had committed. I think it's to his ex-girlfriend. This letter about, like, you made me do this. I don't know. It just, it was an angry love letter. But in this letter, he actually admitted to killing Michelle Moore Bosco. He had been in prison for beating a woman in the same complex that Michelle lived in. He had also sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl within the same neighborhood. And all of this happened within three months of Michelle's murder. And the detectives didn't think that this was suspicious at all. That that drives me crazy, because, like, why wouldn't you look for someone who has convictions, like, prior charges that fit the crime that just happened? Like, why wouldn't you look for similar people? Yeah, I guess uh, Ballard, I don't know if he was friends with Tamika Taylor, but this woman was the one that pointed her finger at um, the first suspect, I guess, like Danny Williams. She was the one that told the detectives, check this guy out. So she moved the investigation away from Ballard, even though that the two of them knew each other, which is so frustrating to me. Wait, and so Tamika Taylor knew Ballard. Correct. And Tamika Taylor was the same person at the very beginning that told detectives that her hunch was that Danny Williams did this because he had a weird, creepy crush on the victim. I did not know that. Do you think she knew that Ballard did it and was just trying to, like, save him? Uh, I have a very strong suspicion, yes. But I I couldn't find it anywhere. Me being me, I want to say yes, and that she's not a very good person. But going off of evidence and whatever, there was nothing that said that she knew. 
I did not know that she knew him. Yeah. And, of course, Ballard's DNA matched. He confessed immediately, saying he acted alone. But the state of Virginia was undeterred. And they all still went to trial. They said, well, uh, uh, you may have killed her, but these seven other men were still involved. Eric Wilson went to trial first. The prosecution now had a theory involving eight people. So the four original, the three that had been released, and now Ballard, despite his claim of acting alone. And this became an even more complicated conspiracy theory, and it was said that they met in a parking lot of the complex and decided to join the seven, that Ballard decided to join the seven men in the crime because there was no association between these Navy sailors and Ballard. They spun it so that the seven of them were plotting to sexually assault and rape Michelle, couldn't get into the house told this random man, Ballard, that they met in the parking lot, oh, this is what we're planning on doing. You think you can get into the house? And Ballard was like, yeah, I can do that. And then all eight of them would then apparently proceed to break in, sexually assault, and murder this woman. I don't know if it's because they were in the courtroom and they heard the confession tapes, they saw all of the evidence, that they were like, this seems reasonable, but as an outsider, what? Like, there's no way. It does not seem reasonable. Like, it's so hard to believe. Like, usually, a suspects or like criminals don't admit before they do a crime or talk to random people about doing said crime before they do it. Like, it's usually hush hush because they don't want to get caught. Exactly. That's so silly. This now conspiracy went against the initial theory of detectives and what they believed that the first man, Danny Williams, he was the one that went into the house first and opened the door because they he knew the victim because he was friends with the husband and they lived in the same complex. So this just didn't match anything from the beginning of the trial. And Ballard went to trial, of course. He pled the fifth. And Joe Dick was the key witness in the trial. And he, <laughs> I just, I can't wrap my head around this. Joe Dick testified that all seven tried to get into Bosco's apartment, couldn't, went outside, met a stranger, started talking about the crime, who then just joins them and agreed to everything. Oh my goodness. Like, what? <laughs> I just, I don't get it. <laughs> no, honey. That's so sad. So Wilson, um, he was sentenced to eight and a half years. He, his charge of murder was dropped, so he was only charged with sexual assault. But the other three faced life in prison. Daniel Williams and Joe Dick took their plea deal, didn't go to trial. They faced life in prison. The one confession that no one believed was Omar Ballard's and that he had acted alone. In 2010, Ballard met with um, the PBS writer, whomever, gave an interview and said that the prosecution didn't even want to hear that he acted alone. 
He avoided the death penalty by agreeing to say that he committed the crime with the four original sailors. And he said that he wasn't surprised that these men confessed. And so Ballard had said that he could just see right through Detective Ford. He was trying to be bad cop. It makes me so angry, though, that there was like a total of nine confessions essentially and the one confession they didn't believe was the man who had the most reasonable story yeah and so before ballard had even said any of this um three major law firms took this case on as pro bono and it was the innocence project that actually took on this case apparently they filed a clemency petition in 2005 Governor Kane took three and a half years to come to a conclusion about this petition, denied the request for a full pardon, and said that the confessions were too overwhelming to ignore and that the four men were guilty and they they committed the crimes. So in 2009, conditional pardons were granted for the three men still in prison. So Eric Wilson had already served a sentence of eight and a half years. He was released, but the other three men were required to register as sex offenders and felons, which branded them, basically. They were said to be out, but not free, because if you have the stamp of a felon and a sex offender, you can't really do anything with your life. Eric was released four years before these guys got their pardons. He was said that he couldn't work some jobs, he was escorted off jobs, can't find housing... That's so upsetting because he didn't do anything. He was picked out of a hat. He didn't actually sexually offend against someone, and he has to live as a sexual offender. Like, that's so unfair. Well, after that, Detective Ford was indicted for abuse of the criminal justice system. He was extorting money from defendants to get favorable treatment. He was sentenced 12 and a half years for this. So, see you later, Detective Ford. Go F yourself. Derek Tice, he won his petition to have his conviction overturned. But, of course, the Attorney General of Virginia appealed it. But it later turned out that his conviction was vacated. So, he became the first of the four to be fully exonerated. On October 31st, 2016, the convictions of Daniel Williams and Joe Dick were vacated. So they were found innocent of their crimes. Wilson, because he had already been released and served his sentence, he was actually unable to challenge his conviction in court because he completed his sentence and he wasn't under supervision. But in March of 2017, all four men were granted full pardons. And a statement from the governor's office said, quote, These pardons close the final chapter of a grave injustice that has plagued these four men for nearly 20 years, end quote. Thankfully, City of Norfolk has agreed to pay $4.9 million to the four former sailors as compensation. And the state of Virginia also agreed to pay $3.5 million. And I know, serving... X amount of years in prison, decades in prison, going through the shit that you, sorry, the stuff that you go through, money can't fix that, but it's a step somewhere in the right direction. Did they, like when they were pardoned, did they get rid of their sex offender status? 
Yep, so it was a full pardon. None of them need to register as a sex offender. None of them are deemed felons, which is amazing. That makes me so happy. Right? So it ends on a good note. That's amazing. Well, thank you for telling us all about the Norfolk Four and also ending it on a happy note of this case because the last (laughs) I've heard of this case was what had happened in 2010. I hadn't heard any of the updates so I'm really glad to hear that they were exonerated because I never actually knew if they were. Yeah. So now that we've heard all about the impact that false confession can really have on people and how it can really happen to anybody, Journey, would you care to tell us more about the science behind false confessions? Yes, I would love to. I'm going to start by talking a bit about like police investigations because those are very important. Um, often they have more information that can be beneficial to the police, but police officers are just asking all the wrong questions and going about the investigations or the interrogations or interviews so wrong that they can't actually get the information that the eyewitnesses have for them. And so if the officer is suspicious or their spidey sense is tingling during the interview, um, it can quickly turn into an interrogation. And so the purpose of an interrogation is to gather more information and listen for those inculpatory or exculpatory statements. And so an inculpatory statement is a statement that makes you look more guilty. So it puts you at the scene of the crime and like points towards you as a suspect. And an exculpatory statement is a statement that makes you look less guilty. So it places you away from the crime scene and points away from you as a suspect. And so... In interrogations in the past, there have been physical methods to obtain confessions that have been used. And Nicole kind of touched on this a bit. Um, But those have been made illegal. So now they use psychological methods, such as saying, like, if you don't confess, you're going to get the death penalty or whatever. Like, we can get you a plea bargain. But this isn't applicable to Canadians because we abolished the death penalty in 1963. So that's good. And in this case, the psychological methods were so extreme that it got to the point where they weren't afraid of what was going to happen next. They were afraid of Ford, just like Nicole said. And it kind of created a feeling of tell the truth and die or lie and live. So they kind of confessed to save their lives. And often in interrogations, the police officers have a guilt bias. So they're presuming that the person is guilty even though they might not be. Like, they walk in with a presumption of guilt, which is not great. And it's not a function of, like, their incompetence or lack of training. They just tend to have a guilt bias because they spend a lot of time with people who've broken the law. So more often than not, they're dealing with a guilty person than an innocent person, which is sad, but it makes sense. Um, And they're also under a lot of pressures because, obviously, you want to catch the bad guy. You want to get the rapist or murderer off the streets and bring closure to the victim's family or to the victim, and they're understaffed, which causes problems, and um, they often get in the mindset of, well, if you didn't do it, then someone else did, but you were still involved, which was seen a lot in this case, Um, especially when, like, William's DNA didn't match, so they said, okay, you were there, you just didn't rape her, someone else was there, and they just kept adding on people. And so confession evidence in interrogations It, like, saves time and resources if the suspect confesses. And confessions are so powerful that you almost don't need any more evidence in a trial, as we've seen. 
and this that, kind of like sorry. sorry to interrupt. I was gonna say that I just this whole case I can't get over, but the fact that they will take someone's word over any form of physical evidence just I there's so many issues with that. Right, and we saw it with the eyewitness misidentification. Like, they're willing to take the word of a person over solid scientific evidence. Yeah. It's, yeah, aggravating. And, yeah, so they just think, oh, it's solved. Move on. It doesn't really matter. And often what happens during these confessions is there's what's called the phenomenology of innocence. And so this happened in this case. We kind of touched on it a bit before. And so this is where... They believe that their innocence is transparent and evident to all. So I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I'm going to look innocent to you guys, even though you are a police officer with a guilt bias because they don't know about guilt bias. And so they'll waive their right to silence and counsel. And Which so- I, feel, I feel like that's how everyone sees it too. And even when like, I know I talked to like my dad about what we were doing this episode on. I was like, yeah, like false confessions. He was like, well, why would an innocent person confess? Like, well, there's more to it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot yeah. of stressors. Yeah, because it's like, if you're in an interrogation and they say, oh, do you want counsel? You're like, well, the matter of thinking, I'm going to look guilty if I ask for legal aid. Because exactly. I'm obviously innocent and I'm not going to need help if I'm innocent. As soon as you waive that right then, too, the detectives are like, perfect. We can get them, get them to say whatever they want to say because they don't have that legal advice yeah and they encourage you not to like we've seen on like all these crime tv shows where they're like oh do i need a lawyer like do you think i'm guilty and like if you get a lawyer you're just saying you're guilty so it kind of just reinforces that and so there's kind of like three main reasons why people would waive their right to silence and counsel and i think we've covered all of them um so the first one is that they know that they're innocent they think the police are going to see that the second is they don't, they don't understand the police caution or their Miranda rights. And I talk about that a bit um, later on. And appearance management. So like we said, you waive your rights because not doing that makes them look guilty. Which is a huge flaw in the system. And that's the thing, that's the thing with being second law students. Like we understand that we can ask, like, okay, what are we being charged with? Can you explain... Like, what are the charges against me? Why am I being held? Like, give me this, pretty much. Another thing we learned, too, which all of our listeners should keep in mind if they're ever arrested and required a polygraph test. Polygraphs are admissible in court now anyways, so keep that in mind. And two, detectives and police are not allowed, they are legally not allowed to withhold evidence from you. So if they tell you, like they did with these men in the Norfolk Four, oh, you failed this polygraph wherein they actually passed it, you can literally be like, okay, can I see the results? Like, can I see the paper or whatever? And sure, you may not know how to read a polygraph, whatever, but then the detectives are like, oh, crap. Like, they'll know that they passed kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah. They make it fairly obvious. So always ask to see your polygraph results. And any form of evidence. If they say they have evidence against you, just be like, show me. I want to yep. know. And so, thankfully, there's a lot of psychological literature on false confessions. And so we know a lot about it. And so 
we didn't really cover the definition of what a false confession is. Um, false confessions occur when an individual confesses to a crime that they did not commit or they exaggerate their involvement in a crime. Due to this extensive literature, there's evidence that false confessions occur with some regularity, which is kind of upsetting because if yeah. they can have this effect on like a lot of people's lives, that's that's awful. And the fact that it happens so frequently, especially with such high-profile cases like the Norfolk Four, like, sure, maybe if it was ripping a hole in your sheets that were overdue for a change anyway, it's like, I could see that. And people believe that if you confess, it must be true, which we ranted about. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Innocence Project says that 27% of 130 cases that they worked on involved false confessions. That is way too high of a percentage for me. I was just going to say, like, it goes to show that this is a relatively common occurrence, despite, like, every innocent person saying, I'd never confess to a crime I didn't commit. Yeah. it's, It's not rare that this happens. They're the number two leading cause of wrongful convictions, following eyewitness misidentifications. And so, obviously, there's some problems with false identifications that we want to fix. First off, they're psychologically damaging to the person who confesses, as we saw with Joe Dick. Like, it had a psychological toll on him that he falsely confessed. And uh, the p- real perpetrator is on the streets. In this Thankfully, case, he in was this case, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was in jail, but like, that doesn't happen in every case. And when it comes to light that there was a false confession, it greatly reduces the public's trust in the legal system. Yeah. Yeah, like, I do not ever want to be interrogated by a police officer. I feel like like if I was in that position, I would just be crying for eight hours straight. Right? Oh, my God. Me too. Like, having someone be like, you're gonna die. You need to tell the truth. I'd be like, I am telling the truth. (laughs) Don't kill me. Yeah, it seems like the biggest lesson I've learned from being, like, a psychology student with a focus on, like, law and and stuff is that... I don't ever want to deal with the police, especially yeah. if I'm an innocent person, because I don't completely trust that they're going to be good enough to get me out of the situation, <laughs> especially in a very awful crime. Like if I had to deal with the police as a, a witness, I had to just give them some information. Like I, I'd be fine with that. But being hounded for eight hours in an interrogation, that's a no for me. I get the nervous sweats. That's what a polygraph measures. Like, yeah. Boom, guilty. So, there's three types of confessions. First is voluntary. So, with a voluntary, you can have a true confession and a voluntary false confession. So, a voluntary true confession is when someone walks into the police station and says, I did it, it was me, I killed Dr. So and so. And then a false confession is when you confess to protect someone else. Or for your living situation. Or you just want attention. So say it's nicer in jail. You get three meals a day and a bed to sleep on. You'd be like, okay, no. I, I confess to this. Sorry. Or what kind of confession was that? You, you said voluntary. it was a, Oh, I thought you said, I thought you just called it a false confession. That's what I heard. So I was like, isn't that <laughs> yes. what we're talking about? <laughs> no, this is a voluntary false confession. Okay, thank gotcha. you. Yeah. And so an example of this is of John Benet Ramsey. So a guy confessed after a number of years, but he didn't actually do it. And police could prove that he was out of the country. 
And so the second type is coerced compliant confessions. So this is where you confess to escape an adversive situation to avoid a threat or gain a reward. Um, Sounds familiar. (laughs) It really does. (laughs) And so, like, with this one, quid pro quo is illegal. So you can't be like, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Because that's not allowed. Um, But police officers can imply things. They just can't be explicit. And so I don't know if at the time of the Norfolk Four it would have been illegal to be, hey, you can have the death penalty if you don't confess to this. Because that sounds like quid pro quo to me. I don't know if it fits the definition. I don't know. Can't help you on that one. Okay. But yeah, so they can (laughs) just like imply things. I feel like at the time, because it was late 90s, I feel like because they weren't saying you are going to die, it's like, oh, well, if you don't, like, then this will happen. Yeah. And they were saying, like, do you want the needle? Like, do you? Yeah. They they weren't saying, like, you're going to get it. They weren't. But I feel like in that sense, too, it's quite explicit. In that, yeah. Regard. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't anyway. know. So the third type is coerced, internalized, and so these are innocent people who end up believing that they committed the crime. So this is what happened to Joe Dick. And so after spending X amount of time in the interrogation, they confess and fully believe that they committed that crime. And so this can be caused by like mental things such as like high suggestibility, drugs or alcohol. So. Try not to be high or drunk when you're being interrogated. It can also be caused by, like, reality monitoring problems. Like, did I dream it? Did I hear it? Did I read it somewhere? Like, where did this confession come from? And sleep deprivation, which if you're in an interrogation for 20-plus hours, you're going to be sleep-deprived. I think with um, Joe Dick's case, too, because... He was in jail for the amount of time he was, and with his learning disabilities and stuff like that, he just sat in his room and thought of all of the ways in which he did do this, and how, why he did it, and put himself there. I think it's like with eyewitness misidentification, where he just replayed it over and over and over in his head until he believed that he did it. Yeah. Which is similar to someone watching a crime and then seeing a lineup and just replaying it over and over and over in their head until that person becomes the person in their memory. Yeah, Yeah, like, as we we talked about last class, memory is, like, it's flexible. It changes. Last podcast, you mean? Last class? Last class. (laughs) (laughs) So, the psychology of false confessions is kind of interesting. And, like we kind of talked about, there's a presumption of guilt in the initial interview with suspects. And evidence shows that police believe the suspects are guilty, believe that they are lying. Uh, One guy even said that you can tell if a suspect is lying by whether or not he is moving his lips. Which is such an awful thing to say. So if they're talking, they're lying. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish I was a ventriloquist at that point. I could give the detectives (laughs) a run for their money. Isn't that awful? That would be crazy. So, like, if a suspect answers your questions, you're automatically lying just because you're a suspect. So, we're lying. Like, everything we are saying right now are lies. Like, sorry, guys. This whole episode is fake. Yeah. Evidence also shows that police are so confident in their judgments, and they believe that they're accurate 77% of the time. However, they are not very skilled at detecting deception. 
no and one is which yeah is crazy. exactly no one's good at detecting deception they've done multiple studies and they've all found that we suck at telling when people are lying yeah so chalk that up to being human wasn't one of the studies that our prof was telling us about they did a study with judges and they all thought that they could detect when someone was lying 100% of the time and it ended up being like 50% of the time that they yeah. could and they were like don't publish this information we don't want the public to know this yeah and there was another one where they like had cops and just regular people and the regular people were more skilled at detecting deception than the cops were um, second, innocent suspects tend to waive their rights. And so research in the U.S. and the U.K. shows that about 80% of suspects waive their rights and submit to questioning. And this is especially the case for juveniles and those who don't have any knowledge of the law. Yeah, that makes sense. 80% though. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's way higher than I'd expect. Right? Isn't that crazy? And so... I have the police, the Canada's police caution here, so I'm going to read it to you guys. And let me know if you guys understand it. And so it starts off, I am charging you with blank. You have the right to retain and instruct a lawyer without delay. You also have the right to free and immediate legal advice from duty counsel by making free telephone calls. Do you understand? Do you wish to call a lawyer? You also have the right to apply for legal assistance through the Provincial Legal Aid Program. Also, you need not say anything. You have nothing to hope from any promise or favor and nothing to fear from any threat, whether or not you say anything. Anything you do say may be used as evidence. Did you guys understand that? That is way too wordy and confusing. Like, they don't need to make it that excessive. Just say, like, like just, just be basic about it. Yeah. It sounds like me trying to fill the word count of an essay. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. Just say, you need a lawyer? We can get you one if you can't. Do you want to stay silent? Okay, just know that whatever you say is evidence. Yeah, and so it's like they designed it this way for a reason. Like it's not written for public, like for the public use, which is so silly because you're giving it to normal people, not lawyers. Public, they're reading it to yeah and it's usually given during a stressful time which makes it that much more stressful and if english isn't your first language you have no hopes of understanding what this means yeah and so thirdly innocent suspects tend to elicit highly confrontational interrogations and so specifically the read technique is used and it's used by almost all police departments And when I was researching this, because I remember learning about it in class, but I don't remember learning that it was a bad thing. And I don't know how I missed that, because it's very obviously not great. Um, So it's a nine-step process. So first off, you confront the suspect with, with assertions of guilt. So this includes having them think about and visualizing the crime, which can lead to, obviously, confusion if you didn't commit the crime. And then you kind of develop themes that justify or excuse the crime. And so this is kind of giving them a way out. So you can be like, it's okay, I get it. Like, I would have done that too. It was self-defense. And then you interrupt all of the suspect's efforts at denial. So as soon as they start to say, no, I didn't do it, you jump right back in there with an assertion of guilt. And then 
you try and overcome the suspect's factual, moral, and emotional objections. So you're breaking them down. And you try and keep the passive suspect engaged because you, you don't want them to withdraw from the conversation. Um, and then you try and show sympathy and understanding and kind of urge the suspect to cooperate. And it's permissible for police officers to lie during this um, stage. That makes me so mad. Like, they're so mean the whole time, and then they just do a full 180, and they're like, no, but it's okay if you confess. And yeah. then, on top of that, they can, they're allowed to lie, but they're expecting the suspect not to. And then they offer a face-saving alternative view of the alleged guilty act. You're like, it was an accident, it was provoked, it was spontaneous. Kind of, again, trying to explain it away. And then they get the suspect to recount the details of the crime. And so, as we've seen in the Norfolk Four, they fed them a lot of information about the crime. And so when they ask them to tell them details of the crime, they're going to give you accurate details of what happened. And then the police officers convert this statement into a full written confession, and that's it. You are now in jail because you confessed to a crime you did not commit. The read-style techniques are coupled with, like, implications of positive or negative consequences, and this increases the likelihood of a confession. And so this minimization of the crime leads to a belief in leniency, like, oh, the judge isn't going to be that harsh, or I'm not going to get this trial or this sentence. And, and obviously, juveniles and persons with mental illnesses are most vulnerable to these interrogation styles, as was especially evident with Joe Dick. And then fourth... Um, aggressive interrogation styles cause innocent suspects to confess. That was the whole read technique. Shown that by like maintaining your innocence often leads to more aggressive interrogation techniques, which is not great because these interrogation techniques impair your decision making. So you're already not thinking straight. And there's a system that's designed to get you to incriminate yourself being used against you. And they're kind of manipulating these three psychological processes, and they are isolation, confrontation, or maximization, and minimization. So isolate, isolation, the suspect is left alone in the interrogation room for a period of time, and then confrontation and maximization is just scare tactics to intimidate the suspects. And then minimization, you just kind of are trying to provide that false sense of security to get them to confess. The fact that the legal system has so many techniques to get someone to confess, yep. just, like, it baffles me. Like, they're, they're only looking to put someone behind bars at this point. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, the innocent suspects elicit the longer interrogations. And so the average interrogation time is one and a half to two hours, which is long, but, like understandable but after the two to two and a half hours the risk increases for false confessions and for demonstrable false confessions it's 16 hours like that guarantees you a false confession i just i hate that they're even allowed to interrogate someone for that long non-stop that's, that's inhumane like if it's absolutely if it's known that anything over two two and a half hours will increase the likelihood of a false confession, they should keep it to two hours maximum and have multiple if need be. 
All of the yeah. Norfolk Four guys were interrogated for like over 10 hours, which makes so much sense as to why these confessions happened. Right? On top of their eight-hour interview or whatever. Yeah. Ridiculous. And then lastly, like we kind of covered, police and the courts cannot distinguish between genuine and false confessions. And so I don't really need to go over this too much because we kind of talked about how they have difficulty distinguishing between true and false confessions. Isn't it that a lot of the time they focus on physical responses? So like, oh, gaze aversion, sweaty hands, all of this stuff to determine. But a lot of it's like, oh, maybe a cultural thing, gaze aversion. It may be like they're not considering why someone's actually If you have sweaty hands, you could be anxious. You don't have to be guilty in an interrogation to be anxious. Like being in an interrogation or being questioned by police in general, even if you're innocent, is going to be scary. Yeah, exactly. And so the effects of this confession on the other evidence in the investigation is that it affects how police look at leads. They look at leads based on what the suspect tells them. If the confession mentions accomplices, it changes the whole course of the investigation. And even in this case, they didn't mention accomplices (laughs) to start. So I don't know why they just decided that. And if there's any, like, ambiguous evidence, it's interpreted as inculpatory. It's used against them. And it used to be ambiguous, but now that you've confessed, it's become very important. And often the exculpatory evidence gets ignored or discredited. And they ironically blame that on a faulty memory. And so it tends to channel the investigation. So because this one person confessed, they didn't look at other leads because Tamika Taylor said it was Daniel Williams. They didn't bother looking at other leads, which is very unfortunate. I think that part, if they didn't go around asking, what does your gut tell you who did this? Like, how the hell are the neighbors supposed to know who did this? That's not the way you phrase the question. But, like, for them to not even look at an individual convicted of several different charges in that area because she pointed the finger at Danny Williams. Yeah. What? <laughs> right? Like, how do you even, like, get there? Exactly. Yeah, and it also affects other evidence. So, as we saw, the alibis disappeared. They became no longer alibis, which is so aggravating. And the witnesses kind of reason, like, oh, if he said it, It must be true. Like, he confessed. He did it. How are they able to bypass a solid alibi, though? That's my question. How are detectives not even morally able to do this, but, like, legally able to be like, oh, well, you have proof you were not in the state, you were doing whatever, whatever, but you're still guilty. Yeah, like, for, for the Norfolk Four suspects... That were literally at sea when the murder happened. Like, there has to be, like, literal documentation of their time at sea. Because they would have had to get paid for that that time. Yeah, and that's not something that you just fake. No. So, like, how... I Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Nicole. I have no idea how they can possibly just, like, bypass very solid alibis. And so many of them in this case. Yeah, it just happens so frequently. 
Yeah, very annoying. And so the confessions, as we also saw, affect the lawyers. So if your lawyer believes you did it, they'll get you a plea bargain to avoid trial. And this is, in the case of a false confession, you really need a good lawyer. Because, as we saw, the lawyer thought that they were guilty from the start. So he didn't do anything to prove his innocence. Which just... Right, yeah. Like, I'm speechless. I don't even know. That just makes me so angry. So, like, that's the thing I don't get. Like, that is your job. You go to school, you make an oath to defend innocent, guilty people, whatever. And then you're just like, oh, well, we can't help them. They said they they did it. Like, that's not, no, you don't stop there. You keep, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm with you. I'm speechless on that, too. I I just can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. And, like, it's especially difficult for the at-risk populations. Yeah. Like, they're more prone to being susceptible to a false confession. And juveniles are particularly vulnerable, as well as people with cognitive and intellectual impairments and people with mental disorders and people with high suggestibility, like Joe Dick. And so if you're at the hands of a highly skilled investigator like Ford, there's no hope, really. The admissibility of confessions is another issue. Confessions have to be voluntary and made by a person who is competent. Who decides what is competent. Um, And there's this confession rule where all statements made to a person in authority must be proven to be voluntary for them to be admissible. Interesting. Right? Where was this with the Norfolk for? The proof. Show me the proof. Yes. And also, who proves that it's voluntary? Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to get the cop that coerced someone to confess to be like, uh, he did it on his own. Like, it's... It kind of... Like, that's why you need videotapes, to prove that it was voluntary. Yeah. And so, obviously, confessions elicited by coercive tactics are inadmissible. However, subtle forms of coercion are admissible. So if you're just subtle forcing them to confess, it's okay. But if you're explicit forcing them to confess, it's not okay. And so an important case study is R.V. Oikel. I'm not going to tell you really much about the case, just the outcome. And so with this case, um, it gave the judge criteria of how to decide whether or not a confession is voluntary or admissible. And so the factors that should be used to determine whether a confession is voluntary are the court must consider whether the police made any threats or promises. Um, They can't be explicit, but they can be implied. The court must look for oppression of the suspect, and the court must consider whether the suspect has an operating mind, so they're aware of what they're saying, who they're saying it to, etc. And the court can consider the degree of police trickery. As long as it does not shock the community. What? Yeah. So you can trick them all you want, as long as it doesn't shock the people in the community that you use that to trick them into confessing. But at what community? Like, in the jurisdiction that it happened with? Is it the public community just as a whole? What if you have a super effed up community that has seen some crap? 
and they don't get shocked by anything. Yeah, and that's honestly, kind of the issue. Like, it, it seems like the general consensus is that murderers are bad people. <laughs> right? So, like, the community is generally going to think, oh, let the police do what they want to get the confession out of the murderer. So what is it going to take to shock the community? Exactly. Yeah, that's a huge issue with that. And then we have some more recent developments in Canada. And so the first one that I'm going to talk about is R.V. Singh. In 2007, the outcome of this case involved the suspect's right to silence. And so, in Canada, police do not have to stop questioning you if you invoke your right to silence. They can continue to question you. I thought that was in the States. I thought in Canada you had to stop. Oh, the other no, way around? In the States you have to stop. And in Canada, they're just allowed to keep going. And also in Canada, you don't have the right to have counsel with you during the interrogation. You don't yeah. have the right? No, That's you cannot okay. have your lawyer with you during an interrogation in Canada. Yeah. In R.V. St. Clair in 2010, um, the police officers have to advise the right to counsel and provide a reasonable opportunity for the suspect to consult with their counsel. But after this initial consultation, there's no right to consult further with your counsel unless your charges change. So you get one chance to talk to a lawyer. Like, what are you supposed to do at that point? Like, it's at the beginning or whenever you get your legal aid. If you've never been in a situation like this before, like, I wouldn't even know where to start with us, like, with my legal aid, asking them what to do, how they can help me, what to do in the future. I would, plus my memory is crap to begin with, let alone in a stressful situation. I wouldn't even remember what they told me. And then for them to be like, oh, sorry, you can't talk to them again. Like, what? Is, is that, though, for if the lawyer can't come right away? I don't know. I don't know either. Because it feels like if they can't come, you get one phone call with them. But if they can come, then they're allowed to be in the room. Like, that seems so criminal to not allow you to have a lawyer. I learned in my advanced psych and law class this, like, just this semester that they you can't have a lawyer during interrogation. You get your phone call beforehand, and there's actually three... I'm just trying to look for it now because it's in my notes. There's three uh, reasons that they would allow you to reconvene with your counsel, and it was decided in the Sinclair decision and you would mention Journey. Um, and those are if there is a new procedure involving the de detainee, which would be like a lineup or polygraph. If there's a change in jeopardy, so like you had mentioned, if they get new charges laid against them. Um, and also if new information arises that indicates the suspect that waived their right to counsel didn't actually understand the right when they waived it. So this could be because of like a language barrier or they might have been under the influence of drugs or alcohol or even because they were coerced to waive it. And so there's some alternative approaches that we can use to kind of fix this issue of false confessions. And so first off, we kind of have using like cognition and memory processing to your advantage. It's a known fact that it's harder to keep a story straight that's a lie than it is to tell the truth because it's so cognitively taxing and demanding. So if you're constantly like switching it up on the suspect, 
and you think that they're lying, if they are lying, their story isn't going to stay straight and they're going to be working harder to keep the story lining up with what they already said versus if they were telling the truth, then they it wouldn't be hard for them to keep their story straight because they're not lying. And so to do this, um, police officers just like increase the cognitive load placed on the suspect. And so your cognitive load is your ability to handle multiple cognitive tasks. Mine is very low. <laughs> very low. <laughs> but I know that, so that's okay. And so second, we have the cognitive interview. This was invented by Ron Fisher and Ed Geiselman. And so this kind of puts, or they kind of recognize that the control is completely in the witness or whoever you're trying to get information from. So you, what can you do to make them tell you the most that they know? So to start, you establish a report. You have some chit-chat, hi, how are you, would you like tea, coffee, water, whatever. You kind of make them feel at ease and relax. And then you invite free recall. So you want to capture everything that happened from, like, the first moment that they remembered it. Because we know that memory degrades with time, so you want to get it ASAP. And then you kind of want to slow down the rate of questioning. You don't want to pepper them with questions and overwhelm them. And it's really important that you sequence your questions correctly so that you can get the most out of them. And then you want to recreate the original context. So you ask them, close your eyes, try to make, try to take yourself back and tell me what happened. Was it raining? Did you smell anything? Did you hear anything? Kind of just trying to jog their memory. And then you tailor questions to individual witnesses. So if you're dealing with a child, you're not going to use big words generally. Or if you're dealing with someone who doesn't speak English as a first language, you're going to try and accommodate them so that they can give you what you want. And then this is like the major part of this interview system is to make the interview witness centered. The witness knows more. So you need to make sure that they are the center of your attention and you need to be very sensitive to the distinction between correct and incorrect responses. You don't know as the investigator for sure what they're telling you, if it is correct or not correct. So you can't outright say, no, that's wrong. You are guilty. You are lying to me. You can't say that because they're going to shut down and you won't get anything more out of them. But also, you don't want to suggest what the right answer is, if you know the right answer. And so the cognitive interview is how police should interview witnesses, but it's not always what happens because you may not need a statement from a witness if you have different evidence. And they're probably not going to use it if they suspect you of committing the crime. Uh, nonetheless, it's important to have a prompt interview as soon as possible after the event. Memory degrades and changes over time, which is what we've stressed over these past two episodes. It's like physical evidence. You need to collect it before it can be changed or contaminated. It's also important to have solo interviews so that who you're interviewing or interrogating don't feed off of each other and kind of embellish their stories. And witnesses should refrain from speaking with each other, obviously, because it contaminates their memory of what happened. And then you need to be aware of, like, the confidence inflation at trial. And so we should put in some safeguards in place, which are just mechanisms to prevent error in our legal system and reduce the likelihood of a mistake. In the context of police interrogations, we need legal representation, and you need good legal representation. You need 
lawyers who do not believe that you are guilty from the get-go. We need to make the can the police caution understandable. Because can you really make an informed decision on something that you don't understand? And we need to educate courts on the expert testimony of police procedures and the vulnerabilities that happen and the potential for false confessions. And we definitely need to videotape our interrogations. Especially, they need to be equal-focused camera perspectives. So the camera has to be focused on both the suspect and the interrogator. This protects police against false allegations of abuse, and it protects citizens from police coercion. And it also gives the courts something tangible to make an informed decision on about whether or not it was a false confession. And this would have really helped Derek Tice when he had to practice his confession for two hours. Yeah, and obviously not just recorded at the confession standpoint, but the whole entire interrogation. And even if it's 11 hours, it's still 11 hours that you can see everything. Yeah, and then if they tell the jury that they know that false confessions occur after two hours and you have an 11-hour interrogation tape, you can, oh. Okay, and so just lastly, we have another approach, um, and this is the PEACE model of interrogation. So it's P-E-A-C-E. The P stands for preparation and planning. When you go into the interrogation as the investigator, make sure you have an intimate knowledge of the case files and set objectives that you want to come out of the interrogation with, other than a confession. E, engage and explain the purpose of the interview. Caution the suspect, establish rapport, engage in conversation. This is very similar to the cognitive interview steps. Um, A, account, which is when you want to obtain a report of the account using cognitive interview or conversation management techniques. So basically, you just want to get an account of what happened. And then C is closure. So you end the interview, you summarize the main points, the suspect corrects you if necessary, and then the next steps are explained. Um, E is evaluate. So you consider the information obtained and how it affects the progress of the investigation. With the peace model, there's no coercion, no manipulation, no trickery. It enhances community perceptions of the police. Unfortunately, you do need training for this, which is why a lot of police stations haven't implemented it because it's quite an extensive training program. But there's been some results from police officers in the UK using it that are very encouraging, so we're hoping it can come to Canada soon. Um, But a lot of police officers are so set in their ways that they don't want to switch from the read technique. They're very resistant to that change. They like being able to bully the suspects into confessing. And there's not enough research on it to really know if it's going to result in good things. And that is all I have for false confessions. I hope you guys learned something and found it interesting. Feel free to send us a message if you have any questions about false confessions or the Norfolk Four. I want to know, too, if this is as infuriating to other people as it is to us. I don't know if it's because we're, like, psych and law students, psych, forensics, whatever, all of these things, that we can, we see these issues and know that they can be fixed, but they aren't, or if it's just so apparent to everyone. It's very, very aggravating. (laughs) Very! It's so aggravating. Well, thank you both so much 
for uh, Nicole for telling us all about the Norfolk Four and for Journey for leading us through our discussion in education on false confessions. Um, I very much enjoyed this discussion. It got me a little heated, but I'm sure it did that to all of us. <laughs> um, so just before we announce our next topic, I have a joke for you guys. I I haven't told a joke yet, and I found one that made me giggle. It's really cheesy. <laughs> Go for it. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay. What happens when a police officer goes to bed? What? He becomes an undercover cop. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that one. I haven't seen that one. That one's good. That I one love- really made me laugh when I saw it, and I just had to share. <laughs> and I like that one a lot. That one's really good. Oh, so <laughs> really good. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. So we selected our next topic a little differently this time. Instead of using a random number generator and the serial killer book, we decided to keep going on the role of psych and law since we've been doing that for a couple episodes. Um, we wanted to kind of end our whole psych and law spiel with wrongful conviction, where we'll be talking about the wrongful conviction of Guy Paul Morin in Canada and also the causes and problems that can arise that lead to a wrongful conviction. Yeah, so even though this case was a wrongful conviction, in a, obviously with four, um, we wanted to focus more on the science behind wrongful convictions rather than false confection, false confessions. So hopefully everyone is as interested as we are. We figured it would be easiest to kind of um, link um, them all together back-to-back episodes rather than, like, putting different sciences in between these episodes. But, yeah. They can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC, and our website is WhatTheForensics.ca. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to send us an email at WhatTheForensics at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. So this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed talking about this case, and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.